0: it is great to be with you and um we're looking forward today to getting into this new series you might want to turn to 1thessalonians it's a, a letter in the new testament um i would give you a page number but your bible isn't the same as mine um but we, yeah well if you, if you if you keep your finger on the page of 1thessalonians we'll refer to it in a little while um here's a question for you How would you like to be remembered? What would other people say about you if you weren't here? This man on the screen had a very rude awakening in relation to this. Does anyone know who this is? No? This is a man called Alfred Nobel. He's a Swedish engineer, and uh, he invented dynamite. But in 1888, get this, his brother Ludwig died, but the papers got it wrong and thought Alfred died. Imagine getting up to have your breakfast and opening the paper and reading your own obituary. <laughs> but the shock for him, because of his connections with dynamite, this is what the headline read. Le marchand de l'amour est mort. My French is not very good. Does anyone know what that means? I'm looking at Jean-Pierre and William. <laughs> no one knows? They don't. Oh, William's giving me the thumbs up. It means the merchant of death is dead. Imagine getting up for your breakfast and reading about yourself with that headline, The Merchant of Death is Dead. Well, our new friend Alfred was very shocked, not only to read his own obituary, but to learn that he would, he would be remembered in such a negative way. And he began to think to himself, how can I change this? And he came up with a cunning plan, which I think has worked amazingly, He ordered that all of his cash in his will should be invested into an annual prize fund for people who did amazing stuff. This is what it said in his will. Prizes would be given, I quote, to those persons who during the previous year have rendered the greatest services to mankind. Alfred originally created five Nobel Prizes. Three for science, one for literature, and the fifth was the famous Nobel Peace Prize. So in the end, he wasn't really remembered for successfully inventing dynamite without blowing himself up. But for the Nobel Prizes, he started. Now, Alfred started selling his new product, under the catchy name, Nobel's Blasting Powder. <laughs> that was his first title for it. I don't, I don't know if he was a, a good businessman with a title like that. Noble's Blasting Powder, that was his first name. But he changed it to the word dynamite, based on the Greek word for power, which is the word dunamis. Dunamis is the Greek word for power, and he came across this word and thought, What a great name for Noble's blasting powder! Let's call it dynamite, and the name stuck. Now, why do I tell you all that? We're very excited, as Jane said, to be starting a new series today in this New Testament letter, 1 Thessalonians. And if you're there, you uh, there, well, there's two, there's, there's lots of reasons why I love this letter, it's one of my favorite letters in the new testament but let me give you two otherwise we'll be all day. my my first reason and if you're in one thessalonians just look with me at chapter one and verse five because paul uses the word dunamis power and it's there in verse five he he talks about he, he says because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with dunamis Power what we what we could say now, dynamite. The gospel is and was God's dynamite. But the second reason that I, I love this letter is because it is also so real and human and relatable. And we need that don't we too this short letter there are five chapters in this letter it encompasses the full range of human emotions there are tears and disappointments and deep anxieties alongside exuberant joy that sometimes seems to be bouncing off the walls what we have here in this letter is the explosive power of the gospel meeting the messy reality of human life. Next week, we'll start getting into chapter one, but my task today is simply to introduce 1 Thessalonians more generally. And I I think I I have one aim, really, and, and that is for us to see that this letter is both wonderfully positive and utterly realistic. So, to help us with that, uh, I have one question, another question. Not how will you be remembered, but here's my question I want us to think about this afternoon for a few moments. What, What kind of mindset do you need to have to be on mission when life is messy? What kind of perspective do you need to be on mission as a Christian believer, even when life is hard and difficult and messy? Does that make sense? That's the question I want us to think about this afternoon, mainly because there's three M's there, and they're going to be our three headings. Not in that order. First of all, I want us to start with mission, and then we're going to see something of messiness. And then we'll try and close by taking away something that hopefully will help us in terms of perspective or mindset. So that's where we're going. Number one, mission. Um, One Thessalonians is first of all about mission. And by that, I'm not talking about Tom Cruise or, you know, some task that you have uh, should you choose to accept it. I'm thinking here about Christian mission, the great task of spreading in the world the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Gospel means good news, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to suggest under this first heading that we could define Christian mission in two ways. It involves both movement and clarity at the same time. Okay, so one of the things that will help us, I think, to understand this letter, we're going to be 10 weeks, I think, in this letter. This will take us through this autumn term towards Christmas. We're going to spend a few weeks here looking at this letter. One of the things that will help us is because we also have in the New Testament, the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we, the book of Acts describes how a church was first of all planted in Thessalonica Here's a map. Um, It's the best map I could find. uh, uh, This room is big, so if you're sitting at the back, you need binoculars. But ask me afterwards, I can send this to you if you like. But this this map shows the um, well, first of all, the red arrow at the top shows where Thessalonica is. Okay, so you can see it there. It was a very important and bustling city in the first century and um, it's in what we would call now northern Greece, just below Albania, Macedonia and Bulgaria it's on the coast so it was a thriving port very important city now, if if you travelled from Jerusalem, which is here in the east if you went in your car and followed that red line, you would travel through Turkey and eventually you would get to Thessalonica and that would be about 1,500 miles Um. Paul and his colleagues, Silas and Timothy, that's who the letter's from, you'll notice that in verse 1, they, they, they travelled, th- this red line is their second missionary journey. So they, they were basically travelling. We, we know that the gospel reached Thessalonica within 20 years of the death of Jesus, which I think is incredible, because we, we know the date in the book of Acts of a Roman governor who was only governor for two years. And so we we can pinpoint very accurately. And that that actually means that 1 Thessalonians might be the earliest letter that we have in the New Testament. So this is very soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus. What I want us to notice here is movement, first of all. Paul and his friends are on the move, but they're not going on holiday to northern Greece. And neither, this is important as well, they're not running away from something either. They're on the move. There's motion here. And the reason they're on the move is because these men are missionaries. They're on the move because they've been sent by God to share the good news of Jesus with people who haven't heard it yet. That's why they're traveling. It's good for us to remember... That the reason that there are Christian missionaries like this is because God is a mission minded God. We might say that God Himself is always on the move, God is reaching out to this world in love. And when we think about it, Jesus, his son, was also and is also on the move. Jesus went on an even bigger missionary journey than these guys did following this red line. Jesus, the son of God, left heaven behind and was born into this world in order to bring redemption and salvation and forgiveness to us through his life and death and resurrection so the whole foundation of christianity is about direction of travel and the direction of travel is not the world gradually moving towards god the direction of travel is that god is on the move moving towards this world in the person of his son reaching out to a lost world with his love and because god is on the move Because God is on mission, because Jesus is on the move, doesn't it follow that his people will always have something of movement about them? Jesus told his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel to go into all the world. Baptising people, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus had taught them. And so they couldn't keep still. (laughs) They were compelled and constrained and sent to share what they had now come to know about Jesus, even though it cost them a great deal. I remember going to um, Tom and Claire's house and they had a tortoise one time. But the gospel is not like a hibernating tortoise. The good news, the gospel is alive and on the move. And the whole book of Acts in the New Testament throbs with this dynamic movement, motion. When you truly understand the good news about Jesus, you can't hoard it. You can't sit on it or save it up or just cherish it in private. You have to give it away to others too. The gospel is always outward looking, never inward looking. So there's one thing that Christian mission involves, motion, outward looking movement. But I want you to notice too, That these missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're not just travelling here to share their own opinions or to peddle some kind of product. I mentioned already that Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 5 Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power. What that does mean, though, is that it did come by words. It wasn't just words. It was words and power. But don't skip over that and miss the fact that it did come with words. These men travel to Thessalonica with clear content. I want you to notice as well, if you've got your ping, uh, finger, finger finger in the page of, of one Thessalonica, that was a spoon, wasn't it? Um, Paul Paul talks about our gospel in chapter 1 verse 5 but in chapter 2 verse 8 he calls it the gospel of God and in chapter 3 and verse 2 he calls it the gospel of Christ it's the gospel of God it's the gospel of Jesus it's Paul's gospel this gospel is big (laughs) this is not just Paul's own idea these men are not on the move with something that they've dreamt up They are custodians of a message from God, from heaven to this world. So what I'd like us to keep your finger, not your pinger, in the page of 1 Thessalonians. But let's just flick back to the book of Acts and let's read what happens when these men go to Thessalonica. It's in Acts chapter 17. We're just going to, yeah, keep your finger in those pages and maybe over the next few weeks as we're doing this letter you'll you'll be looking at both of these here's what happens when these men travel you can see on the map uh, where they're going but Acts chapter 17 and verse 1 says this when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. I love this next verse. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. I love the numbers in that. Some Jews, a lot of Gentiles, and not a few prominent women. How many is that? Several. Is that double figures? I don't know. It's more than one, isn't it? Some, many, many, And not a few. So as Paul uh, shares his gospel, God's gospel, Jesus' gospel with them, they've moved, but they've come with content, clarity. I want you to notice Paul's strategy. He reasoned with them. He talked with them. He explained and demonstrated things to them, and he did that by using words. His message had a particular content. His gospel was not just a fuzzy, vague thing that made people feel nice. His gospel contained information that was knowable and graspable and understandable, And notice there in Acts that Paul starts with the Bible and he shows from the Bible how the death and resurrection of Jesus had been promised there all along for centuries. He shows them how the centuries old word of God points to the Son of God. And his his whole task is summed up in his own words. He is proclaiming Jesus to them as the Messiah. God's promised King and Saviour who had to suffer and die before powerfully rising again. So these guys are moving, but they're moving with content, information. So in this mission, there's motion and there's clarity. I think in the light of this, there's, There's two opposite dangers maybe for us here in our church. The first is that we're not on the move. That's the first danger, isn't it? It is possible that we, you and I, we settle down and we become inward looking. And we're holding on to the good news about Jesus. And we're battening down the hatches. And we're quite comfortable. And we become static complacent rather than being engaged in God's mission which is outward going and the opposite danger is that we are on the move but we've got the wrong content our calling is to be on the move but like Paul our calling is to use the bible to point people to Jesus calling them to trust him showing them our God is on the move saving people bringing the good news of the gospel to lost people I think there's a blueprint kind of for Christian mission here It always involves outward-looking movement and it always involves clear content that focuses on proclaiming, not our own ideas, but Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. Will you pray with me that here at REC we would be a church that combines those two things, motion and clarity? So what was the second M? Um, messiness. Let's uh, have a little think about messiness then. We've seen the, the mission. One Thessalonians, not just about mission. I want to highlight the sheer, messy, difficult, painful reality of it. This mission was both fruitful and really hard at the same time Paul and his friends they they knew that they'd been sent by God and people did respond to their message as they shared Christ with people there, there were people who responded believing in the love of God for them shown to them in Jesus Before Paul and Silas and his friends arrived in Thessalonica, you can read this in Acts, they'd been stripped and severely beaten in Philippi. Then in Thessalonica, there was a riot and Paul and his friends had to leave during the night. Let's uh, pick up what happens again in the book of Acts, chapter 17 and verse 5. You've seen some Jews believed, a large number of Gentiles believed not a few prominent women believed verse 5 but the Jews were jealous so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob and started a riot in the city they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd but when they didn't find them they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting these men have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house what an idiot (laughs) they're all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there's another king one called Jesus When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. I don't don't know what it means to be put on bail. I, I, I think that what's happening there is that They've essentially, Jason and his friends had to put money up and be promised to keep the peace. And so for Paul and Silas' own good, they they, they decide that it's, it's better if you leave during the night and you go somewhere else. So they've been flogged and beaten in Philippi, a riot in Thessalonica, and the trouble follows them down the road when they get to Berea. This is where the human side of the story comes in then. Let's first of all put ourselves in the shoes of the new Christian believers in Thessalonica. Just imagine what it was like for them. They've literally just come to faith. And then one morning they get up and find out that Paul's gone. What's that all about? They have so many questions. They've got so much to learn but the one who has led them to faith in Christ has suddenly done a runner. And it, think about this: it's not just that they're on their own. Think about the husbands of those prominent women. They're, perhaps these are wealthy couples in the in the city. There's just been a riot, and the husbands are asking their wives, "How can you believe a guy who shows up for a few days and then disappears?" So not only are are they on their own, but their critics are are almost mocking Paul. And then let's try for a moment to put ourselves in Paul's shoes. Remember that this is before the age of the internet. There's no email. I'm not sure if there's even regular post. Paul travels south and the trouble follows him. But he also has no idea how these new Christians are getting on. Will they give up? Are they suffering persecution? Has there been more rioting? Have they carried on in their new faith in Jesus or have they lost it? Not only has Paul and his friends been physically beaten. But he also carries every day in his heart. This enormous burden of worry as well. About those he loves. And whether they're doing well or not. I think the best way to see something of Paul's state of mind. At this point in his life and to see how this played out is to is for us to go back to 1 Thessalonians I did tell you to keep your finger in the page 1 Thessalonians let's let it speak for itself 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 Paul describes to these dear new Christians what has happened and it's beautiful chapter 2 and verse 17 Listen to Paul. Paul says this, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope? Our joy. Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer. We thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. That is over 300 miles to the south. When we could stand it no longer, we sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ. We sent him to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way, as you well know, For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. Listen to this. I was afraid. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. I do love how Paul has two reasons for sending Timothy. He starts with a good one, doesn't he? I sent him to encourage you. But his other reason is that he's just worried that it's all been for nothing. All of that effort, all of that pain, he's worried that it's all evaporated. Let's read on. Verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you And has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. And that you long to see us. Just as we also long to see you. Therefore brothers in all our distress and persecution. We were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. I get the sense that Paul wrote this letter the same day Timothy showed up. He's been waiting for weeks. Timothy shows up one day. How are they doing, mate? Timothy says, you won't believe this. They're doing fine. Paul writes this letter because he's literally overjoyed to find out that these new Christians after all of his worry are doing well he's been beside himself and now he's thrilled the gospel works it's dynamite God has been faithful. He's looked after them. He's kept them. But what we're seeing here, I hope what we're seeing here, is this glorious mission and this incredibly messy mixture of joy and difficulty, of success and opposition, of fruit and pain. This is the reality. And it's okay. Now, you will have noticed at the beginning that we've called this little series The Return of the King. And you've, you've heard now Paul's preaching in the book of Acts about how Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Here's a crown of thorns alongside the confidence of future glory how does paul do such mission in such a messy brutal confusing world i want to suggest that there's something in his mindset that grasps the truth about Jesus and it's the fuel that sustains him. When you see it, you'll notice that it's all over this short letter. If you look back at what we already read in, the, in chapter 2 and verse 19. Paul said, what is our hope, our joy, our glory in the presence of Jesus when he comes? You see what's in Paul's mind? The return of the king. And look again at Paul's prayer in verse 13 of chapter 3. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when... Our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He he prays in the light of the return of the king. His mindset is saturated with the confidence that the same Jesus who died will come again. And the reason that Paul can do what he does is because his perspective is shaped by hope. He can do mission and endure hardship and face the messiness because his vision is filled with Jesus. In his weakness and in his worry, he's strengthened by the hope of the return of the king. This world is messy, but it's not out of control. There is a king who holds all things in his nail-scarred hands. So thirdly, or third, our mindset. And uh, we'll finish with this. Um, some Bible commentators call this mindset uh, a kind of now and not yet Mindset. You'll remember that Paul preached from the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament wasn't written yet. So when he goes to the scriptures, we're talking about the Old Testament. And I wonder whether Paul might have explained it something like this Three Sabbath days in the synagogue, he's there for three weeks. And he opens the Old Testament. And there are many prophecies in the Old Testament Scriptures from the centuries before Jesus was born that seem to allude to the end of time. And someone, I think a Jewish believer, reading the Old Testament Scriptures would come to the conclusion that there are only two ages, the current age and the age to come. They, they, they called the current age the age of wickedness. This is an age of oppression when God's people are under pressure and fragile and and they describe the age to come as the age of righteousness. And what they saw in the Old Testament was this great promise that a king would come one day. He would conquer his people's enemies. He would deal with injustice and bring in a new eternal age of peace. Every evil would be overcome god's children would be safe every threat would be dealt with and those who believed in god's word lived in the quiet hope that one day this broken world would be fixed the wicked would be punished and evil would be conquered decisively and i want to say to you all of these prophecies are true But what the Old Testament writers couldn't see so clearly is that the promised king would come twice. The first time. And it's all there in the Old Testament. That's what Paul did when he went to the synagogue. He's showing them this. The first time he would come in humility. To win salvation. Born. In an animal feeding trough, (laughs) living in obscurity, and ultimately rejected and crucified. The first time he came in humility to win salvation, so that that salvation could be proclaimed to the whole world. And the second time he will come in glory at the climax of the age. So it is as if Jesus in his own person combines both the current age and the age to come in himself. His cross is the ultimate example of oppression and the wickedness of the age, isn't it? But is not the resurrection of Jesus the evidence that God has overcome all of this and begun a new creation the coming age of righteousness has powerfully invaded the current age of wickedness and friends we shouldn't be surprised that we're caught up in a messy mixture. This is an in between time of now and not yet, where the triumph of Jesus coexists and lives side by side with all kinds of difficulties. This is exactly how it was for Jesus, too. His life wasn't a story of unmitigated triumph, he was rejected. And humiliated and marginalized and ultimately murdered. But we also do not give in to despair because Christ has come, his kingdom has been established, and there is life, and hope, and forgiveness to be found. In him. We we can look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus and trust him completely. But he hasn't finished yet. We now live in an age where the good news of the gospel can be proclaimed to a messy world because of the confident hope that the king will return. Oh man, it's so hard to introduce a new series. <laughs> One Thessalonian, all of these themes are colliding in this letter, and we'll see it over the next 10 weeks. What a glorious mission! What a tremendous messiness! And what a wonderful mindset! It's all here in this letter. Let's close with this Jane read to us earlier from John chapter 14. This was the night before Jesus died, Judas has left because he's about to betray Jesus. Jesus tells them that Peter is about to deny him. And then Jesus tells his friends during this meal that he's only going to be with them for a little more time. They've left everything to follow him and this is the worst night of their lives. Everything is falling apart. This was the worst evening with the worst news and the worst prospects that they'd ever heard. What on earth is going on? And that <laughs> tomorrow Jesus will be dead. <laughs> but what does Jesus say to them next? This moment must have seemed absolutely incredible to them, and yet Jesus says to them next. John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In in the moment of their greatest darkness, in the moment when they're utterly confused, Jesus calls them to trust him. First of all, Jesus is saying to them, whatever has to happen now, they'll know this afterwards. Whatever is going to happen, Jesus knows what's going to happen. Whatever happens in the next 24 hours, the end will be glorious. We will all be together in my Father's house and you are all going to make it To that destination. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And second, Jesus says to them, I'm now going to prepare this destiny for you. They don't know what that means yet. Jesus knows that providing that destiny for his friends is going to cost him his life tomorrow. I am going to prepare a place for you means. I'm going to the cross for you. And Jesus' logic here is, if I go and prepare a place for you, i.e. if I'm willing to go to those lengths to purchase your destiny, I will come back. When you buy something precious, you look after it, don't you? Jesus is saying, if I go and prepare a place for you, know this. I will come back, and I will take you to be with me so that you also will be where I am. My question was, what mindset do you need to be on mission in this messy world? People wrongly said of Alfred Nobel, The merchant of death is dead. But the gospel says the king of life was dead, but now he lives. The reason Paul could be on mission in a world where difficulties and joys exist side by side is because his mindset was to trust Jesus who suffered and died for sinners and rose again and who one day will return to bring all of his children home. Amen. Amen, brother. Thank you. Wonderful. Amen. Let's bow for a moment, shall we? Father, we thank you for this wonderful part of the Bible, this lovely, positive letter. We thank you for the insight it gives us into the humanness of Paul, the struggles and the joys of ministry and mission. And we thank you for the fact that his heart and mind were so captivated with Jesus that he and his friends could be on mission in this messy world. We pray that you would help us as individuals and as a church to be on mission. Father, would you put that courage and hope, help us not to be surprised when things are hard. Help us to put roots down into Jesus, our Saviour. And help us to trust in the return of the King. Help us to live every day for His glory and by His grace and goodness. And we pray in His powerful name. Amen. Amen.